So we're returning to the Gospel of Matthew this morning. And in the first couple of chapters, we've been looking at the early days and years of Jesus' life as Matthew has presented them to us. And we've talked about already how the Old Testament verses that Matthew quotes in these early chapters don't really work as predictions. That will become abundantly clear in this morning's passage. Matthew, in Matthew 2, 13 to 23, we're going to read about three events in the early days of Jesus' life. And Matthew will conclude each event with a citation of Scripture introduced with the formula, this happened to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, or something like that. And none of the Old Testament verses that Matthew points to are predictions, that is, future tense statements about something that was going to happen later on. Jesus and the New Testament writers recognized that Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament was much bigger than just him doing things that the Old Testament predicted the Messiah would do. Jesus said that he fulfilled all of the Old Testament. All of it is to be connected to Jesus somehow. All of it finds its fulfillment, its completion, its solution, its resolution in Jesus and the work that he came to do. Matthew wants us to see that in some really specific ways. One of the things Matthew wants us to understand is that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Now, what do we mean when we typically say that? I think most of the time when we say those words, Jesus is the Son of God, we mean Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God who has existed forever in eternal relationship within the Godhead, within the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have always existed in this relationship. God has always been a relational God for all of eternity. And that relationship is defined by this father-son relationship with the Holy Spirit between them as well. But is that the only way Jesus is the Son of God? Matthew wants to show us that there are layers to that statement. Matthew will show us that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, but he also wants to show us from the Old Testament that there are other important ways that Jesus is the Son of God. He highlights three other ways of understanding Jesus' identity as the Son of God. First, he wants us to see that Jesus is the royal Son of God. The royal Son of God. The Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel chapter 7 indicated that David and his royal descendants, each king of Israel in his lineage, would be a son of God. Matthew's genealogy of Jesus highlighted this connection for Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus is not only the eternal Son of God, He is also the royal Son of God. Secondly, Matthew will show us how Jesus is the human Son of God. Jesus' humanity is on display in many ways in all four Gospels. Luke's genealogy takes his lineage all the way back to Adam. And then the genealogy concludes in Luke 3.38 in identifying Adam as the Son of God. As other New Testament writers teach, Jesus has come as the last Adam, the head of a new humanity. 
He is the fulfillment of everything humanity was supposed to be. He is the truest human. He is the perfect human. And He is therefore the Son of God in human form. He is the human Son of God. Third, and this one seems to be shown most clearly and repeatedly by Matthew of all the New Testament writers. Jesus is also the national Son of God. In the Old Testament, the phrase Son of God is also applied to the nation of Israel. The Lord told Moses that he was to go to tell Pharaoh in Exodus 4, 22 and 23, that Israel is my firstborn son, and Pharaoh therefore must let my son go that he may serve me. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus fulfills this aspect of being the Son of God as well. Jesus is the fulfillment of the nation of Israel. And that's one of the things Matthew really wants us to see in our passage this morning. Jesus is the national Son of God, as well as the eternal Son of God, the royal Son of God, and the human Son of God. As I said, this passage this morning breaks down into three events, three episodes. And Matthew has framed this with the history of Israel in a very creative and wonderful way. Let's just enter the story, and then we'll try to understand what Matthew's up to here. Before we read Matthew 2, 13 to 15, let me remind you of the immediate context. The Magi have just come to Jerusalem. They left their homes far away in the pagan east, following a star all the way to Jerusalem to worship the newborn king of the Jews. They inquired of King Herod where the newly born king of the Jews was, which was news to him, bad news to him. And they, he asked his wise men, the chief priests, where the Messiah was supposed to be born. And they drew from the prophecy of Micah chapter 5 to suggest that he would be born in Bethlehem. So Herod told the Magi to go to Bethlehem to worship the newborn king and then report back to Herod where the baby was so he could worship him too. As we read a couple of weeks ago, the Magi found the baby Jesus, worshipped him, and gave him expensive gifts. Before returning to King Herod, the Magi went to sleep for the night and they received a message from the Lord in a dream that told them not to return to Herod. So they obeyed and headed back east, avoiding Jerusalem on the way. We pick up the story in verses 13 to 15. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. So the Lord again sends an angel to speak to Joseph in a dream. The angel commands Joseph to take Mary and baby Jesus to Egypt in order that they might escape the murderous rage of King Herod. The angel tells him to keep his family in Egypt until I tell you. He doesn't tell tell him how long their sojourn in Egypt will be. 
He doesn't tell them exactly what will happen. He simply commands them to get up and go. Matthew, the narrator, indicates that they will remain in Egypt until the death of Herod. But he does explain why. Herod is going to search for the baby Jesus to destroy him. It's a very powerful word, to destroy him. Joseph heeds the warning and obeys the command immediately. He wakes in the middle of the night and packs up their possessions, including the expensive gifts they've received from the Magi, which would probably fund the journey, and gets Mary and baby Jesus ready to go on a long trip. Joseph doesn't ask any questions. He gets up and does what he's been told by the angel. He travels into Egypt. But here's the big question. Why does Matthew care to tell us this story? The key to answering this question is understanding Matthew's quotation of Hosea 11.1 in verse 15. If he, Jesus, is going to be called out of Egypt in fulfillment of Hosea 11.1, then he's got to go down into Egypt. And so Matthew tells us this story. Now, before we delve into what exactly Matthew is doing with the verse from Hosea, let me try to explain the big picture of what Matthew is doing in this whole passage. Think about it like this. Matthew sees what's happening in Jesus' life as though it were a kind of stage production so that Jesus is embodying in himself the history of Israel. Jesus' experience is telling the story of Israel's history. The big fancy word that gets used sometimes for this is recapitulation. Jesus is recapitulating or recapping the history of Israel, and Matthew wants us to see this. As you're reading this part of Matthew's gospel, you are sitting in the audience of the great stage production entitled The History of Israel. Here in these verses, the curtain rises on Act 1, and the title card appears, Exodus. The part of the nation of Israel is being played by Jesus. How do we know this? Because of the scripture that Matthew has quoted here. To understand the significance of this, we've got to go back to Hosea to consider first and foremost what was Hosea saying with these words, out of Egypt I called my son. First, just notice that this is a past tense statement, not a future tense prediction. It doesn't say, in the future I will call my son out of Egypt. In fact, if you read Hosea chapter 11, it is quite clear that the Lord is giving a history lesson through the prophet. In verse 1, he goes back to the beginning of the history of Israel to talk about the exodus. The phrase, my son, refers to Israel. As we looked at earlier from Exodus 4, God took the nation of Israel out of Egypt at the beginning of their historical life as God's son. As Hosea continues the story, very quickly he shows how God's son was disobedient, rebellious, and idolatrous. Israel failed to live like God's son ought to live. But in verses 10 and 11, 
of Hosea chapter 11, he looks forward to the day after judgment, after punishment, after exile, when God would bring them back out of Egypt again. Hosea, like several Old Testament prophets, looked forward to the return from exile, the restoration of the people of Israel, the prophesied return from exile, and they characterized that great coming event as a new exodus, another exodus that God was going to accomplish. Matthew, then, wants us to remember all of that. Matthew wants us to see that what's happening in Jesus' life is telling that story, the story of Exodus. So, looking at the stage production, Jesus is playing the part of the nation of Israel. But there's another character on the stage. Think back to the beginning of Israel's history. Think back to the book of Genesis. Before you get to the Exodus, how did the nation of Israel, the family of Israel, go down into Egypt in the first place. That's the story that's being told here. Jesus is going down into Egypt as Israel went down into Egypt. And how did that happen? Well, recall from chapters 46 to 48 of the book of Genesis, there was a man named Joseph, the youngest son of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Joseph became an Egyptianized Jew a ruler next to Pharaoh, second in command. So the part of Joseph, the Egyptianized Jew, is being played by Joseph, the carpenter of Nazareth, the husband of Mary. And so, like in the book of Genesis, where Joseph takes the nation of Israel down into Egypt, so here, in the unfolding of Jesus' life, Joseph takes Jesus down into Egypt. In Genesis, there was a threat to escape. The reason to go down to Egypt was because there was a famine in the land. In Matthew, the threat is King Herod. Herod wants to destroy the Son of God. And so in the book of Genesis, a famine threatened to destroy the national Son of God even before they got started. So here, Jesus, the Son of God, is being threatened to be destroyed before he even gets out into his public ministry. Thus, Matthew is drawing our attention to the story of the nation of Israel as told from the end of the book of Genesis into the book of Exodus. And he's doing so through the words of the prophet Hosea. Thus, with the quotation of Hosea 11.1, we see Joseph taking the Son of God down into Egypt so that he can later be called up out of Egypt. And as they remain there until Herod's death, the curtain comes down on Act 1. In verses 16 to 18, we move into Act 2. Before we reveal the title card for this act of the stage production, let's read the passage and consider what we might expect and then follow how Matthew takes us down a different road altogether. Look at Matthew 2, verses 16 to 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. 
Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Herod realizes that the Magi are not coming back. Enough time has passed that he recognizes that they have deceived and disobeyed him. But he is not to be deterred. He wants to eliminate a threat. Now think about that for just a minute. This great king, and he is known as Herod the Great, and he certainly had a lot of power, but this king is threatened by a baby. He was a paranoid fellow, but he feels so threatened by this baby. The Magi had referred to him as the king of the Jews. And if he's born king of the Jews, then this baby has a greater claim to the throne than Herod, who was merely appointed by the Romans. He feels so threatened by this baby that he moves to slaughter other babies. He's hoping to kill this particular child in the wake of it all. It is difficult even to talk about this event, the horror of a king deliberately murdering babies strikes too close to home as we think about government-approved abortion in our own neighborhood. Nevertheless, it might be helpful to get our historical bearings. In a town like Bethlehem, a backwaters town in the first century, there was probably a population of less than a thousand people. And based on the birth rate known from that time period, we're probably reading about, at most, 20 baby boys being killed. Now, that in no way minimizes the horror of what happened here. Whether it's one, 20, or a thousand, someone killing babies is just atrocious to think about. Herod thinks through what he is doing. If we recall his conversation with the Magi, which was his first recognition of a significant birth in Bethlehem, they had told him that they'd followed the baby king's star. They seemed to have understood this star's appearance in the sky as in some way announcing the birth of the Jewish king. But Matthew doesn't tell us when the star appeared in relationship to any of the other events that we read about. We don't know if the star appeared when Jesus was conceived or when Jesus was born, or sometime before or after that. But based on what Herod heard from the Magi, he calculates that two years must be far enough back. And so he sends his sinister agents to kill all baby boys in Bethlehem and the surrounding area, all who were two years old or younger. It's often observed that this event doesn't appear in any other ancient historical record that describe the events of Herod's life. But this is not surprising because Herod did lots of other terrible things. He killed thousands of people at a time, including lots of families that would have had children in bigger cities than Bethlehem. So in light of his other atrocities... What's a couple dozen anonymous baby boys in the little town of Bethlehem from a historical standpoint? But the story's absence from other history books only accents the question for us, why does Matthew draw our attention to this story? Why does Matthew want his readers, and ultimately us, to see this? For those who know their Old Testament, it's probably hard not 
to think back to another story about a wicked king seeking to kill baby Hebrew boys. In Exodus chapter 1, we read about how the Pharaoh of Egypt felt threatened by the size of the Jewish population in Egypt. And so he told the Hebrew midwives not to allow any Hebrew baby boys to be born alive. Famously, the midwives disobeyed. Then, seeing that Hebrew baby boys continued being born, the Pharaoh issued an edict for all his people to kill any Hebrew baby boys they saw. We don't know how many Egyptians might have obeyed this edict. Nevertheless, it's hard not to connect these two stories. And then we remember that Pharaoh's edict was in force when Moses was born. And thus the deliverer of Israel was threatened in his birth. But Matthew actually draws our attention away from that story. And we must follow Matthew's lead here. What does Matthew want us to connect this horrific event to in the Old Testament? He quotes a verse from Jeremiah's prophecy. Jeremiah 31, 15. So Matthew takes us way ahead in Israel's history. From the Exodus all the way into the exile. Jeremiah 31, 15 is referring to the exile of Judah to Babylon. Jeremiah 31, 15 describes the grieving and the mourning that went on when the Jews were marched off to Babylon. So what is Matthew wanting us to see here? The curtain rises again on the stage as the production entitled The History of Israel continues and the title card for Act 2 appears. Exile. So Act 2 is the exile. Thus the theatrical production moves forward in history some 860 years. And the nation of Israel is still being played by Jesus with a twist, as we'll see in just a moment. The part of the Babylonians who come into Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and slaughter many Jewish people and Jewish families, and then march the rest off into Babylon, the part of the Babylonians is here being played by King Herod. So here's where the twist comes in. The baby boys that Herod killed could represent the Jewish people slaughtered by the Babylonians. Think about the exile for just a moment. The Babylonians killed lots of Jewish people when they marched into Jerusalem and the surrounding area. And then the rest of the people, they marched off and carried them into Babylon. So you've actually got two groups of Jews here. You've got the Jews who were slaughtered, and you've got the Jews who were preserved alive. Marched off into exile, but preserved alive. And so it seems that if the baby boys that Herod kills represent the Jewish people slaughtered by the Babylonians, then Jesus, more precisely, is playing the part of the Jewish people driven into exile by the Babylonians, so that Jesus, again, embodying the history of Israel, must go into exile himself. There were two things that happened in the Babylonian exile. They were God's people was experiencing God's judgment. They were under God's wrath. And they were exiled from their home because they had rebelled against God. But at the same time, at the same time, the exile was a way that God preserved for himself a remnant. God always keeps for himself a remnant of faithful believers. 
Even so, even in the exile, God held on to a people who would be faithful to him. And so it seems that Jesus is playing the part of these faithful Jewish people who were preserved in exile. Jesus is playing the part of the remnant. Matthew's quotation of Jeremiah 31.15 is fascinating, given its context. Again, it is no future tense predictive statement. I encourage you to go home today and read all of Jeremiah 31. What you will see is that verse, verse 15 is the only sad verse in the chapter. It's the only negative verse in the whole chapter. A voice was heard in Ramah. Ramah was a little town outside of Jerusalem, which the Jews would have been dragged through on their way to Babylon. So they passed through Ramah while they were going into exile. There's grieving, weeping, and mourning, loud lamentation that's going on. But then... In his poetic reflection, Jeremiah mentions Rachel. Rachel was one of Jacob's wives back in the book of Genesis. She was the one who bore him Benjamin and Joseph, finally. Rachel is here poetically depicted by Jeremiah as weeping for her children. Now, there are two ways that students of Scripture typically take this from Jeremiah. Jeremiah could be using Rachel as a way of symbolizing the Jewish women of the time who were grieving for the loss of their children in Babylon. Or, Jeremiah could be suggesting, with his spirit-inspired prophetic insight, that the spirit of Rachel in the grave, the spirit of Rachel in Sheol, the place where the spirits of dead people live on, was watching the history of Israel unfold. And at the exile of her descendants, as she watches from Sha'ol, she is mourning and grieving at the loss of her descendants going into exile and being slaughtered. Either way, there's appropriate grief and mourning at the exile of God's people, of God's son. But here's the thing. If you go to Jeremiah 31, in the very next verse, verse 16 of the chapter, God commands, stop weeping, no more crying. The whole chapter of Jeremiah 31 is a chapter of hope. It's a chapter of hope beyond exile. It's a chapter of hope for restoration of the people of Israel. One writer summarizes it really clearly. Immediately after the lament of Jeremiah 31.15, the prophet launched into a series of glorious promises. He foretold the return of Israel from exile, verses 16 to 20. The repentance and restoration of Israel, verses 21 to 30. And finally, the institution of the new covenant, verses 31 to 34. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, is one of the most well-known prophecies about the new covenant, what we just celebrated in the Lord's Supper. That's in this chapter, Jeremiah 31. Matthew is drawing our attention here at the beginning of the story, and he's acknowledging that Herod's murder of these boys is awful, worth mourning and grieving. Moreover, it reflects the reality that Jesus had to go out of his own homeland, had to go down into Egypt. 
But at the same time, even with such a sad beginning, the time for the end of the exile and the end of all the mourning has come. The dawning of the new covenant is coming. But just like in Jeremiah 31, there's a bit of a delay. Jeremiah had told the Jews in exile back in Jeremiah 29 that they would be in Babylon for about 70 years. But now, two chapters later, in chapter 31, he says essentially, after that, you're coming back to the land. After that, you're going to be restored to faithfulness to God. After that, you're going to have a new relationship with God where there's full forgiveness of sins and there's a new spirit-empowered ability to obey God and live with Him. But most of that's going to be delayed well beyond the 70 years. Jeremiah doesn't tell us that. Jeremiah doesn't know that. But just like in his day, there was a delay. So here, there's hope that's dawning with the birth of Jesus. But it's Jesus' death that is going to establish the new covenant. It's Jesus' death that's going to accomplish the restoration of God's people fully. It's Jesus' death that's going to bring in the full return from exile. The New Testament writers seem to be aware that even though the Jews are in the land of Israel, they are still experiencing exile because they're separated from their God. And they're still in rebellion against Him. Jesus is the solution to that. Matthew is showing us that all of that is what Jesus has come to do. And so, with the death of the boys of Bethlehem, the curtain comes down and closes on the stage once more. And in verses 19 to 23, the curtain rises once again for Act 3 of the stage production of the history of Israel. And the title card reads, Return. Look at the final verses of the chapter. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. The stage production now catches up with real-time history. For Matthew, history has advanced another 580 years or so, The prophesied return from exile is actually happening in Jesus. Thus, he himself must physically return to the land of Israel. Jesus and his family represent the righteous remnant who remain faithful to God and returns from exile so that all of the promises of God for all of God's people may come to fulfillment. Jesus is the perfect, obedient Son of God, who embodies the nation of Israel in their purposes and in their relationship with God. He is the Messiah who represents God's people 
And he, and so he is now coming back to the land of Israel to pick up his commission and move forward with it. Joseph and Mary fade into the background of the story in Matthew's gospel right here. King Herod has died while Joseph and his family were in Egypt. We don't really know how long they were there, but an angel appears to Joseph in a dream again to report the news. And the angel commands Joseph to go to the land of Israel. And as we ought to expect by now, Joseph obeys the angel's instructions immediately. But the angel didn't tell him exactly where to go. We might assume that Joseph would naturally return to Bethlehem. But while he's traveling, he hears news, perhaps from other travelers on the road, that Herod's son Archelaus is reigning over Judea, which is the region where Bethlehem and Jerusalem were. This news troubled Joseph because Archelaus was much like his father. So Joseph became afraid, thinking that this new Herod would be a threat to his family. Apparently, the Lord sends him another message in a dream and confirms his fears. And so then Joseph decides to go to Galilee. More specifically, he goes to Nazareth, where one of Herod's less volatile and more sensible sons is ruling, Antipas. Now, Luke's gospel tells us that this is actually where Joseph and Mary had lived before she became pregnant in Nazareth. So this probably explains Joseph's own reasoning for settling in Nazareth. But Matthew, again, wants us to see God's sovereign guidance behind Joseph's choice. Scripture has dictated that they will return to Nazareth. Here at the end of the passage, Matthew gives us the strangest of all of his ten specific Old Testament formula quotations when he says, this happened to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. This is the weirdest one. Notice the way it's different. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets, plural, might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. And so Matthew is not quoting a single Old Testament verse or passage. And to make even things even more complicated, if you were to pick up a concordance or do a Bible search online, you won't find the city of Nazareth or the word Nazarene appear in the Old Testament at all. What exactly Matthew is doing here and what lies in the background is hard to pin down, but we'll give it a go. But before we explore that, here's the main point so it doesn't get lost in the shuffle. Jesus will not be known as Jesus of Bethlehem. That would be expected. He was born in Bethlehem. And if he were known as Jesus of Bethlehem, it would be easier for people to make the connection that he is David's descendants and the Messiah who was prophesied to come from Bethlehem. But instead, he will be called a Nazarene which simply means someone who comes from the city of Nazareth. But why is this important? Why does Matthew want us to know this? And how does Matthew attach this to the Old Testament, which doesn't mention Nazareth at all? These questions are harder to answer. Let's stretch our sanctified imaginations a bit. 
what can we say about the history of Nazareth? Not much. It's a little village that may not have been inhabited during most of Israel's history. But what if? What if there were a group of Jewish families who wanted to move out to the country and start a new village? And what if those families were hoping for the coming of the Messiah? Perhaps they might name their new village something that highlighted that hope. It's possible that the city of Nazareth was founded and named in a way that called to mind the Hebrew word Netzer. Netzer. Nazareth. Perhaps you can hear the connection. This Hebrew word Netzer appears in a famous messianic prophecy recorded in Isaiah 11.1. The word Netzer is translated as branch and is descriptive of the coming Messiah. Here's Isaiah 11.1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a Netzer, branch, from his roots shall bear fruit. Note all the tree imagery here. Much tree imagery is used in the Old Testament connected to the Messiah. Several verses go on in Isaiah 11 describing the character of the coming Messiah. So it could be that Nazareth is a village that's named for the coming branch. So that these families got together and they're looking forward to the coming of this Davidic descendant, this messianic branch. Matthew says, so that what was spoken by the prophets, plural, might be fulfilled. Now, hang with me for just a minute. Isaiah 11.1 is the only place in the Old Testament where the word netzer refers to the promised Messiah. But the English word, branch, actually appears several times in the prophets, referring to the Messiah. But everywhere else, it's translating a different Hebrew word. Jewish readers connected these passages because the two words are synonyms. And so, passages like Jeremiah 23.5 were often attached to Isaiah 11.1 in anticipation of the Messianic branch. Jeremiah 23.5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Different Hebrew word means the same thing. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So, perhaps what Matthew is doing is picking up on this prophetic stream that there is going to be this branch that comes and Jesus is that branch. But more prominently is the simple idea that Jesus is going to be coming from Nazareth. He's going to come from Nazareth. Matthew wants to emphasize this probably because the Messiah, somewhat shockingly, is going to be despised. And if you remember anything about Nazareth from the New Testament, you know that that's kind of the attitude that gets presented about those who've come from Nazareth. You remember the comment from Nathaniel in the Gospel of John, can anything good come from Nazareth? And that's a reflection of the typical attitude in Jesus' day towards that city, Nazareth, and the people who lived there. It's a hick town. It's a backwater place. It's a place where nothing interesting happens. And so why would the Messiah come from there? If Matthew's thinking about that, 
Then he's picking another Old Testament theme that indicates that the coming Messiah would in fact be despised and not recognized as significant. You could think about David speaking as a prophet in passages like Psalm 22, where he describes the suffering and rejection of his future descendant. Or Isaiah describing the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. All of that could be packaged in this term Nazarene because it refers to someone who comes from a place despised and not highly regarded. But we are essentially guessing here, and that's probably the best we can do to see what Matthew's specifically seeking to communicate. He will be called Jesus of Nazareth, and it will not be a flattering term. In the Gospel of Matthew, in fact, only one person will refer to him as a Nazarene, and it's not in a good light. Do you remember the night Jesus was arrested? He's on trial, and Peter is out in the courtyard denying him. A servant girl approaches Peter and says, You were with Jesus the Nazarene. Most English translations miss the direct connection to Matthew 2.23 and translate the servant's girl's words as Jesus of Nazareth, which is a different word, different spelling at least. But she called him Jesus the Nazarene. She's not flattering Peter by that association. And later on, in the book of Acts, the Christians became known as the sect of the Nazarenes. In both of those cases has the idea of, you're associated with that hick guy Jesus from Nazareth, who was rejected and scorned by his own people. This is a term of derision. Why does Matthew care to tell us all of this? The drama is fascinating. The Old Testament connections are rich and deep. But what does he want us to get out of this besides a little window into the identity of Jesus? He is the fulfillment of the nation of Israel in a certain sense. But what does that mean? Why is that relevant for Matthew's readers? And ultimately, why is that relevant for us? Who the heck cares? Well, I think it has to do with Jesus' identity as God's son and the connection that God's people have with God's Son. Because, you will remember, we are God's sons. And the connection then comes as we recognize that the treatment that Jesus, as God's Son, received is the treatment that God's sons should also expect to receive in the world. If you need to remember your identity this morning, recall Galatians 3.26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So if you're a believer in Jesus, you are a son of God. You've been adopted into the family of God. You are God's sons. And so that brings with it certain expectations about the way that we're to be perceived in the world. Jesus taught us this in Matthew's Gospel and elsewhere. Matthew 10, 24 and 25, Jesus said, 
A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. That sounds really good. And then he goes on. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household, those of his family, his adopted brothers and sisters, the other sons of God that have been adopted into the family. They treated Jesus badly during his life. So will the world treat the rest of his family. This is a somber note. And the story of Jesus' birth is a somber story in a lot of ways. When we celebrate Christmas, we bring out the tinsel and the lights and the ornaments, but the story has dark tones. And it should, because the light of the world is coming into a dark world, breaking into the darkness. So there's going to be conflict. There's going to be clashing. There's going to be pain. There's going to be suffering. That's the story. It meant that for him the embodied, eternal, royal, human, national Son of God. And it means it for those of us who are connected to Him by faith. Trusting in Jesus doesn't make life easy. But it does make life good. Even in the midst of suffering. Jesus set us up for this. He gave us very clear expectations. And he didn't give us any expectations of some kind of disconnection from the world. He gave us realistic expectations of hostility, conflict, and persecution. The Apostle Peter picks up on this and develops it probably most fully in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 16. Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But... Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. It's important for us to remember that the label Christian was also not a nice label. To be called a Christian in the first century was not a compliment It was not something a Christian was eager to say about himself. It might be the way that we tend to self-identify most easily. Yes, I'm a Christian. But that's not the way it would have been for the early church. In their world, it was other people who said, they're Christians with that tone. And it was a way of deriding them and mocking them. And here Peter says that if you're suffering because of your connection to Jesus, 
If you're suffering because of your faith in Jesus, you have a unique opportunity to glorify God in that situation. Peter could have said, if anyone suffers as a Nazarene, because we are those who follow Jesus, the despised, rejected, crucified, and resurrected Nazarene. Let us never forget that, and let us not be ashamed of it. I think we can all expect in our political and cultural climate in this country for Christianity to become less favored. This is not news to you. It's happening. It's changed so much even in my own lifetime. I'm not sad about that. I'm not grieving that. I'm not complaining about that all the time. (laughs) But I am looking with hope in and through the things that become more difficult that what Peter challenges us to will be true in my life and in yours. That we won't be shocked by it. That we won't be taken aback by it. That we won't look around when Christians are persecuted, when Christians are killed. When we see it in our schools, we see it in our neighborhoods. That we won't be shocked or appalled. That we will endure it. And that we will see it as confirmation that we are following in our Savior's footsteps. He was the rejected and despised Son of God. And yet, He is now the resurrected and glorified Son of God. And that too is our destiny for the future. That's where our hope really lies. Resurrection and glorification with our Savior. So I hope you'll fix your eyes on that hope no matter what happens, no matter what the trials, no matter what difficulties come in your future, I hope you'll fix your eyes on Jesus and the way that He endured suffering in this life, but particularly with the promises of hope to come. As we conclude our time together, I want to sing to our Savior, our rejected Savior, the Messiah, whose name is Jesus the Nazarene. So if the music team would come on up, lead us in singing Jesus Messiah.